Hi, I'm Tara. Hi, I'm Michelle. Welcome back to Books and Beyond with Bound, where we talk to some of the finest writers in India to find out what makes them tick. Okay, so before we get into today's episode, we have to congratulate Michelle because she has published her debut book. She is finally a debut author. Congrats! <laughs> so happy for you. Your dream has come true. Thank you, thank you so much, Sara. It's a poetry chapbook, and and it's out from Yavanika Press. Shout out to the great team. Um, so if you love poetry, please do check it out. For sure. So today's episode is, as usual, different from the rest because we are going to be speaking about animals. We spoke to Janki Lennon, who is the author of Every Creature Has a Story, and it's an amazing book because it tells the story of all of these creatures that we may not even think about, like chimpanzees, bees, octopus, snakes, and so much more. And I love that her primary motivation for the book was to bring all of these stories from wilderness about these amazing and mind-blowing animals into the homes of people who are living in the urban areas. You know. Yeah, and you know, I especially love the story about the chimpanzees and how they grieve about their loved ones' death. Oh, that was so touching. Yeah, and and I love the ones about the ants who don't age. We all want that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and Janaki actually shares with us how she got into wildlife research, which was quite accidentally through marriage, and then there was no turning back. Yeah, and so like she said, she has some amazing stories, like how ants don't age, how elephants don't get cans, can't get cancer, um, you know, how bees don't have antibodies but have a special way of warding off diseases, and many, many more questions. So you, I think you're gonna absolutely love it. I also really liked her relationship with her editor, and she speaks about science writing and how to make things accessible. So tune in if you want to hear some amazing, fun stories about all the animals that you love, and maybe some animals that you don't know of yet but can come to love through this episode and get connected with your childhood love for animals. <laughs> yeah, and by the way, we are doing exciting things around podcast this month. We are announcing a contest, so please follow us on Insta at Bound India. If you're not following us yet, and DM us with the name of your favorite podcast, so we will be picking one lucky winner, and that winner will get a half an hour session with Tara, where you will be discussing everything about podcasts. Yeah, can't wait. So let's tune in. So hi, Janki. Welcome to our podcast. We are so excited to talk to you. Hi, Michelle and Tara. It's so lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. We love that you're so passionate about wildlife, about science. So you know, our first question is: What draws you to wildlife and the environment? Because you actually mentioned that you got into it quite unintentionally. Yes, by marriage. <laughs> um, so I was interested in animals. I, I assume, as all everybody does, and I, at a young age, we are all um, engrossed by animals. We love going to zoos and. Uh, seeing animals, but I didn't have an outlet for uh, as a career. Like I didn't think there was a possibility of a career in that. So I went into filmmaking for a few years, and then uh, I uh, met and married Rom Whitaker, who is a reptile person. So he was literally my entry into the wildlife world. 
that's so cool you know we would love to go into something like this unintentionally um and we did read about you know your adventures with your husband and how uh you know you put that into your first two books and this book that we're talking about is very very different but before we get into all of that um i really wanted to know you know what made you want to uh, be a writer and what made you want to translate your love of wildlife um into something as different as science writing because um you know in many interviews you've shared that you have felt like an outsider because you don't have that uh, you know science training if you will um yeah so even as a writer i'm an outsider because i was a filmmaker by training and for many years that was my um career so and because i came into wildlife late i never had a sense that i belonged there so i just kind of owned the outsider role so i took uh i went anywhere where i was um interested so while i was writing the column my husband and other animals which we uh, you mentioned earlier which became two books i was looking at uh, human behavior and seeing if it had any basis in the animal world and that meant looking into the science talking to researchers checking if my um extrapolations were accurate or too overblown um and i really um uh, was fascinated by how researchers approach the subject so after the my husband and other animals column ended i was looking for another subject to start a column with and i was really looking to find a platform that would let me explore science writing and since i'm an outsider to science i'm an outsider to writing i mean why not <laughs> so that's how it happened <laughs> yeah. thank you so much for sharing that actually you know that was our very next question because i was really curious about what it felt like reaching out to these scientists you know because when you hear the word scientist itself it feels very intimidating and i you know was taken back to the days when i actually started out interviewing writers and i always felt that i was an outsider because i don't have a literature background so you know we wanted to know do you have any anecdote to share with us about probably you know in reaching out to these scientists in your initial days just to add to that you know um like because like obviously you had to correspond with them a lot for the research so uh, what was it like sort of um, you know not coming from a science background and getting in that research my experience with researchers and scientists was really really nice and i had felt that for a long time even as a filmmaker when we were making wildlife documentaries and in the research phase when i had to talk to researchers they were so open and willing to share and no question was too much or went too far and they would tell you if they didn't know anything they were just totally happy to say well you know we haven't found an answer to that so and in my own um area of uh, work at that time filmmaking i found others to be extremely competitive weren't willing to uh, share information or ideas and i felt this connection with researchers right away from the beginning and even as a writer i'm still not threatening to researchers maybe so they are very 
open and only too happy to talk about their research because they know the value in reaching to people who are not their traditional readers. Like they write scientific papers, which other scientists read. But beyond that, it doesn't go very far. So they really, um, at least in the West, it, they've had a tradition now of uh, doing outreach. But my experience with Indian researchers was a little bit more difficult. Often they didn't respond on time or respond at all. Or one person said, I'm very busy right now. I'll write back to you next month. And my deadline was that weekend. It was really, really stressful. So it's only a few institutions in India who have adopted that uh, Western thing about doing outreach of trying to get their science out to the public and they understand what science writers do and they are. And I also learned something uh, funny earlier on. I asked a really, really stupid question to a researcher. And after I hit the send button, I realized, oh my God, that's just such a stupid question to ask. And that person is going to think I'm a real idiot. And, you know, I was expecting blowback, like this irate email to come back. But I got the best quote. <laughs> it was just so funny. And I thought, you know, I should add that to my list of things writers should do. Ask stupid questions. <laughs> I couldn't agree. I couldn't yeah. agree more. You know, oftentimes, um, even sort of like even doing these podcasts, sometimes you ask a question and you're like, oh, my God. You know, what did I say? Yeah. But you never know the responses uh, that you get. So since, uh, you know, Janki, you shared that, you know, you had a deadline and that uh, a scientist said that, okay, they're busy. So I'm curious to know, how did you deal with that since you had such a tight deadline? Oh, I found somebody else. I would look. Um, okay, so this <laughs> okay. third book was right. also um, a column. It rose out of a column that I wrote for The Wire. Right, and it, right. And it was a weekly column. So I would uh, start on a Monday and deliver on a Friday or Saturday. I think on a Friday and it went out Saturday morning. So it was a very tight deadline. And in that time I had to, and every week was a different creature in a different part of the world with a completely different physiology or whatever. And the science would be different. So I had to, and I had no science background. So it would took me a day to just read the paper that I was writing about because I had to find the meanings of words, try to understand what they were doing, asking questions. And then I would read what else that same group of researchers or the main researcher had done to understand more about the subject. And then I would reach out to that researcher as well as other researchers working in the field to understand what is the significance of the study how does that change their worldview so and then I had to write it all down in a language that would be understandable and deliver it on a Friday so if someone says they don't have the time right. I don't have the time to engage with them I just go on to the next person who's willing to talk and there were many of them no, uh, invariably, I felt sad because I was writing for an Indian publication for an Indian readership, and I wanted to interview in Indian researchers. And it, it was just really, really hard to make that happen because of this uh, very uh, bureaucratic way, almost, of dealing with uh, journalists. 
No, but the book is so so accessible. You know, every essay reads like a film, and that's so hard to do. I can't imagine how difficult it was to do with uh, a topic as complex as this. I mean, you made it easy to read for somebody who has no science background whatsoever. And I always, you know, we mentor writers. I always tell my writers that. um you know the simpler you know the more complex thing that you can put in a simple way that actually is good writing and you really managed to do that uh but you know the the whole idea of you know picking all of these different animals and asking a question about them you know uh for example uh, can chimpanzees mourn can they grieve how did you even come up with these questions how do you even choose you know okay i'm going to study this aspect of this particular animal firstly thank you for saying such nice things about my writing <laughs> um it wouldn't do my ego any good at all <laughs> so what i do uh, or what i did through the period i was writing this column was subscribe to various science newsletters so or which send you every day they send you this long list of uh scientific papers that are under embargo or have just been released so you kind of go through literally wade through these piles and piles of uh stuff to find what grabs my attention so if i find something that's fantastic i tuck it away in a folder and i keep doing that through the week for the next week's column Yeah, actually, one of our favorite essays in the book is, uh, at least mine is, you know, the sex change in bearded dragons, because I found it so cool that you know their chromosomes, like in the female, actually determine the sex of the offspring, which is unlike humans, and I found that really fascinating. And Tara, what was your favorite? Oh my God, there were so <laughs> many. You know, when I picked up the book, I really never expected that I would learn so much. One was about you know the humpbacks being altruistic. um and what you found out there and the other was about this specific ant that never ages uh and they haven't been able to figure out why this ant doesn't age so while this ant obviously hasn't escaped death it's drunk the fountain of youth and i found that so funny because in <laughs> yeah. so many of these stories you know these animals have what we humans are so desperate for uh you know yeah, that elixir yeah. of youth so so that was very interesting but we really wanted to know you know you have obviously come across you know hundreds of stories and all of these amazing amazing facts about animals um but are there like one or two that really really stand out to you and could you narrate for our listeners maybe the story of one when there was that thing about the octopus like the general um understanding of octopi is that they um are not very social they beat up each other and so mating is this really complicated uh endeavor you don't want the males don't want to and females are bigger and the males are you know wary of females because they don't want to get beaten up by them and they do all these crazy things to somehow procreate and then they find this uh octopus that was found in great numbers off uh, Mexico i think and uh, nobody would believe the researcher when he reported it and they kept saying no that's not uh, that can't be true and he reported it in the 1970s 
And it was only in the, you know, 40, 50 years later that two other researchers discovered that what he had been saying was right after all. And they got out, they wrote this paper together all those years later. And both the creature, the story of the creature, how this anomaly of an octopus that can be social, that can be all, you know, lovey-dovey with their mate and, you know, be very snug, uh, snuggled together in their den. And then the story of the science of it, of this researcher trying hard to be taken seriously and who had to wait so many years to be finally recognized. Oh, actually, talking about the octopus, Janki, I recently saw a documentary called My Octopus Teacher, where a man spends days after days just visiting one octopus and forming a relationship with her. My God, I loved it. I mean, we don't usually see this connection between, you know, human and animal. It's always, I would say, um, temporary, where, you know, we go to zoos or I'll say, you know, it's just a fleeting relationship that you have with them. But I feel, I felt that this documentary was quite touching and I've seen, I think, you know, the octopus in a very different light. I think after looking at the documentary and your book, I really wish we could talk about these animals all day. They're so yeah. fascinating. It, it really brought yeah. us back to our childhood, you know, because all children yeah. are so fascinated by animals and then obviously yeah. we live in cities, so... Somewhere along the way, you just lose that sort of connect, um, you know, especially us urban dwellers. So it was, it was really lovely to sort of even feel connected in that way um, again, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Have you read this book called The Soul of the Octopus by Cy Montgomery? Oh, no. no. <laughs> oh, you should read really it. cool. Yeah, so <laughs> oh, wow. octopus are... I mean, they are this really crazy creature, right? Like when you talk about how humans are so superior to everything because of the size of our brains, right? And here is this creature which doesn't have a backbone. It, it's, it's not very big and it's so intelligent and they are such great escape artists and it's very, very hard to keep them contained in their container in labs and aquarium around the world. So it's really something. It reminds me of uh, Finding Dory, <laughs> where there was a really cute octopus creature. But anyway, coming back to the process of writing your book. Um, obviously, you mentioned, you know, that the book is a collection of the essays and it's come out of, you know, the columns that you, is the columns that you wrote. Um, but what was very interesting was that, you know, as you said, the research and the research that you based these columns was, was very timely. Um, and maybe sometimes the columns even came out in the same week as the research about that particular animal had come out. Um, but obviously, you know, the format of a book is very different and a book freezes information in time. So I was very curious, you know, um, about, you know, what do you think about the juxtaposition of that and what do you think about the book in the long run? So uh, the Essays in the book are not exactly the essays that went out in the column. So what I did for the book was take those essays and see, uh, I think it was about three, four years later, to see what more research had happened in the meantime. So I updated the research. And um, there's a lot of times when you're doing a column, you have to, I mean, 
you sacrifice quality for speed because it has to go out. So I really spent more time in making science understandable in the book. So um, that's so I I also chose um, creatures like I think I had a collection of hundred and ten to twenty essays, and I chose fifty of them. So it was quite a rigorous process of does this stand the test of time? Does this stand the test of readability? And so on. So, well, yeah, that, that's really interesting to know the process from, uh, you know, draft to book. I love finding out about these things because I'm an editor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned that there were like around 120 essays. So I can't even imagine how many creatures um, you've covered. And you've also said that, you know, in the wildlife world, just like every other world, you know, there's a hierarchy and, and there are certain stars of, of the wildlife who always get covered. Right. And people don't really talk about centipedes or frogs. You know, they're not given much exposure. So we wanted to know how can we be more inclusive? When we think of insects, you know, it's hard. It's difficult to sort of have that same sort of interest or emotion. Yeah. Or they're afraid. I think I think a lot of people are afraid of bugs. Yeah. But if if I may say something which I really, really believe, if you look at the large charismatic animals, I'm not saying they're not interesting or nice or beautiful to look at. But they're kind of duh compared to the small creatures that nobody looks at. So it's the insects and the centipedes and the scorpions and lizards and things that people don't pay uh, any attention to who are the ones doing some really funky stuff. Like they could be from Mars. They are so bizarre. And I think for me, because, you know, I've been watching uh, most of these documentaries on Nat Geo, I think I find the uh, creatures in the underworld, sorry, not underworld, (laughs) undersea very fascinating because, um, you know, I did not know that these creatures look quite different from others. And when I, when I, you know, found that out, wow, it blew my mind that there are creatures, you know, they look so different because, you know, the light reaches them. And those that are deep under the sea, they look really scary, <laughs> really bizarre. So I do, I do think nature, nature is really fascinating. Uh, I always find nature so interesting. Like you mentioned, the deep sea creatures. Some of them, like the uh, you know lantern fish, look so ugly in the you know yeah. traditional <laughs> human sense, but. Uh, And I always find human imagination at that level very lacking. Like if you, uh, I'm not a great fan of speculative fiction or fantasy or anything like that because I just find nature so much richer and so much more weirder than we can ever make it. So my husband's this great fan of sci-fi and I just cannot bring myself to read sci-fi for that fundamental reason because I find it much more interesting in the real world than some hypothetical world you know I never I never thought of that of it this way but you're so right and I would love to see you know more stories about animals I remember reading animorphs when I was a kid 
Yeah, and I and I used to read Champak. You know, it's a very famous Indian, yeah. Uh, yeah, book, and there were a lot of animals featured. It was, I think, one of the best books I read growing up. Yeah, uh, no, but so yeah. speaking about childhood, uh, you know, we read that you hated science in school, and we found that very, very kind of funny and also <laughs> interesting. Because what changed? Like, when was it that moment that changed for you? I think while. Well, doing my own research so i guess i think when i was a kid i was a little bit of a brat i had very i was very independent i didn't want anyone to tell me what i should do so going to school was a big boring thing but there was just no way out of it so i just basically hated my way through school and i didn't like anything about it and i just loved vacation because then i could read my books i could do my own thing and i think now when i look back all my whatever i'm doing today like writing is based on what i learned on my vacation from reading books i don't i can't imagine what i learned in school that has helped me today and i think that's really sad in a way that our schooling has to be so bad at least i think it was for my generation now i know there are schools which are much more imaginative in the way they uh educate and communicate ideas so that whole process of questioning and following the trail basically i just fell down rabbit holes every week so it was just this fantastic opportunity i think instead of the uh why are paying me i should have been paying them for giving me the opportunity <laughs> yeah no when you love what you do you really you, you you do sometimes ask yourself like would i be doing this if you know the pay was much less or not not at all and uh, obviously while that isn't preferable if the answer is yes you know you love what you do but speaking of you know like science not being accessible it just made me think about you know our own school days because we really they really didn't foster the curiosity um and i recently have worked with this company called my stem lab uh, shout out to them uh, which is a very interesting um company that basically creates science kits for children so they have these diy lab experiments and i because i was working with them and helping their content i started doing these experiments myself and i can tell you because of that i learned so much more than i ever did at school so i think what you are doing you know even with your children's book which we want to ask you about uh is very very important i think what i've noticed is so many times when kids ask their parents but why is it like that but why and they just say shut up you know that just completely yeah. cuts off that question <laughs> the whole process of asking yeah. i mean the kid is not being annoying he just wants to really know so maybe the parent yeah. doesn't know the answer but they could channel the interest in creative ways but when they don't you know it's another person lost the science why do we read books anyway whatever kind of book a who done it or a, <laughs> yeah, even a non fiction yeah. because we want to know what happens next it's our curiosity that drives storytelling which drives science which drives why we are going to the moon and the mars and mars it's i mean we we could say oh curiosity killed the cat but it's making humans who we are 
that uh, actually reminded me of a story uh, which was shared by Nandita Das. So apparently she was traveling and, and you know, the uh, there was a child sitting beside her in the plane. And that child uh, was really small. And, and I think, uh, you know, he was coloring the sun green instead of yellow. And when the mother noticed that she just, you know, she hit him and she said, oh, my God, don't you know the sun is yellow? And that's when, you know, Nandita interfered and she said, see, I mean, the child will obviously learn that in a few years, but this is the time when a child can be creative. So I absolutely agree that, you know, parents or, or teachers need to be a little more encouraging and, and I, I think make things more uh, fun for us. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. You've also written a children's book. So, you know, how is that how is that different from writing for adults and and how do you think children react to stories of animals as opposed to adults? Okay, so actually that children's book was the first book that I wrote and I didn't know the first thing about writing for children. So, I just wrote the story which I would have liked to read when I was younger and since I didn't know anything about writing for children, I wrote, I sent it to uh, three children of three friends of that age group that this uh, publishing company wanted me to target. And based on their feedback, I like one, it was really funny. Like I was like hemming and hawing about mating and king cobras. And one of the kids wrote back saying, you know, you should just say it the way it is. Don't go around. I was like, really? <laughs> so sweet. Oh, so funny. <laughs> so, so then I said, okay, fine. I shouldn't, you know, beat around the bush and like be wink, wink, nudge, nudge sort of. And be very straightforward about it and clinical. So I just went for it. They book came out in four or five languages and the way they released it was they sent it to uh, some 30 or 40 uh, educators around the country, people working with underprivileged kids, people working with, uh, you know, construction workers, kids, theater workshops. It just went in this... Uh, completely organic way and those people who conducted these sessions took either video recordings or wrote a blog post about how it went and how the children reacted and it was just the most gratifying experience because as a writer you put out the book and you have either a few people you know, reviewing your book online, giving two stars or three stars and some people saying, oh, I don't know why you even write a book about something like this. To have this kind of very real-time reaction to your book is just so gratifying. I was just so pleased with that. <laughs> but but that's so encouraging, Janki, because I think writers sometimes overthink and they doubt themselves so much. At least I I know that I do think a lot about that. Like, oh, will I do justice to this? You know, uh, do I qualify for something like that? But I think going in with, with, you know, without knowing how it goes about and, you know, just going for it is something we all need to learn. Um, also, you know, to, in addition to that, Janki, you're not just a writer, but we loved reading about, you know, different sides to yourself. So you've also worked in public administration. For example, you framed guidelines on how we can interact with leopards. 
and that was really cool so how was that side of you informed the way you write well that was a very very collaborative project i think there were 20 30 other people involved in that and that it mostly you let the research lead the way and you want the best for people and leopards you don't want either side to suffer but basically when wherever there is an animal caught in a situation that is dangerous for itself a mob of people collect and that is the most dangerous thing that can happen because you really can't control yeah and yeah and, and these videos actually go viral and 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 i always wonder oh my god like do they actually know how to you know deal with these situations yeah no that's one of the things that we wanted to ask you as well you know like so like what can we do to sort of you know how should we interact with animals what can we do you know for our part for wildlife conservation oh gosh that's a big question <laughs> um <laughs> it's so i think first of all we have this thing about humans rule the earth and that you know we have this right to do whatever we want wherever we want so i think a little bit of humility would do us good because like today's news was that you know climate change does not um discriminate uh in favor of rich countries and only affect affect the poor countries as we've seen this here with you know the heat um wave on the west coast of the US and Canada and you know flooding in Germany that these countries have never faced before is going to affect all of us and we have to just be a little bit more humble about what we take and all we are doing is take 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 from the earth and we just have to be a little bit more adjusting and the reason i talk about climate change is also because it's threatening us as well as animals and forests and all the natural um ecosystems around the world so if we were able to not um encroach so much on uh natural spaces like build a dam or connect a road a, a national highway cutting through an already tiny tiger reserve or you know do any of those things that we say oh we need development development but it's like a short term gain for what 10 years from now it might not save us um so yeah i think um humility is is one of the most um important traits um that i think humans should have not just i mean dealing with the environment or or with animals but i think generally in dealing with um each other as well because sometimes i think uh, people forget that this is the most basic thing um so to add to that um janaki uh, what advice would you like to give um writers who are looking to um write science or i will say who want to become freelance science journalists i think main thing to, about science writing is to make it accessible to tell a story and if 
people who are completely uninterested become interested, then you've achieved your goal. So that is basically what you're working towards. And if you are writing about wildlife or animals, you're already in the door, so to speak. It's much, much harder to write about physics, let's say. You know, I can't, I don't think I would have been able to do that kind of science writing with no science background. Uh, with animals, I could just teach my way on the fly. Uh, I mean, teach myself the science of it on the fly. But um, if I had to do it with physics or chemistry, I just do not think that would be possible. And those guys who write about those subjects are, you know, hats off to them. I don't know how they do it. It's a little bit like, um, yeah. I mean, a little similar to business writing as well, um, because a lot of, uh, you know, I worked as a business journalist and I didn't have a business background. Um, so a lot of it is, you know, like the obviously like the financial jargon and all of those things uh, you learn as you go. And you have to obviously also make it very accessible. I wanted to also ask you, because I feel this is very different. I don't read that many books. You know, I... To be honest, I don't read that much science writing. And yours was the first book that I've read as an adult that has spoken about wildlife or animals. And I found it so refreshing. So I want more. I want more more of these. So I would love your I would love your book recommendations. Okay, so in wildlife, I just finished reading A Primate's Memoir by Robert Sapolsky. It's hilarious and poignant and so well written. It's just fantastic you should read it it was published some 20 years ago but i just uh managed to read it and the a recent book was the owls of the eastern ice i think it's by jonathan slot it's about this um okay the first book is about studying baboons in kenya in the masai mara with Owls of the Eastern Eyes, it's just, it's more recent. I think it was published last year or the year before. It's about this guy who, uh, an American who speaks Russian, who studies this great big owl in the Russian Far East. And he, you know, he has to trudge through ice and snow and uh, put tag these birds and work with these uh, local people who are drinking vodka all the time. And also we spoke about Soul of the Octopus earlier, which I also recommend. That was also published some 10, 15 years ago, I think. Yeah, the titles are so cool. I have to pick them up immediately. Oh, you should. They yeah. are fantastic. I really thoroughly enjoyed myself. Um, and I just finished David Key Jane's The Brass Notebook, which was interesting because it's a, She's a feminist economist and she talks about a period of time uh, when I wasn't even an adult. So it was interesting how she went through life. And I'm reading The Lady Doctors now by Kavita Rao, which came out this year or last that's, year? That's on our list. These are some of the best book recommendations that I've ever received because they're so different and they sound amazing. Thank you. So we've received a lot of questions from 
um, writers who want to be, um, you know, freelance journalists, right? Like they want to know, is it um, possible to make a living out of freelance uh, wildlife journalism or freelance science journalism? So what do you have to say to them? I think it might be tough to be a freelance science journalist in India right now. But if you can break into the international market, which I have not done, um, that might be the way to go. Because um, first of all, newspapers are shutting, online platforms are getting more and more um, facing the financial crunch and laying off people. And there isn't that I mean, I think The Wire is one of the few platforms that has a very substantial science um, sections. I can't think of another uh, platform or publication in India that devotes so much space to science or a budget. So to be a freelance wildlife or science journalist based on, I mean, if you're Looking to make a living just on Indian publications is going to be very tough unless you're working yourself to the bone, writing, putting out an article every single day. But if you were to break into the international market, then you can pick and choose your uh, stories, really work them well and not um, worry so much about the pay packet. Wow, that was a very um, insightful answer. Uh, you know, about your relationship with your editor at The Wire, we read that you have a really good bond and that, you know, he taught you that you don't need to quote uh, scientists all the time unless you can say it um, better, which I found really interesting. And, uh, you know, with my interactions with Tara, because she's an editor, I, I, you know, note down all the valuable points that she tells me. So she told me once that, you know, Michelle, when you're writing a first draft, never edit it, you know, like just do a word vomit. I think I'll never forget that line. <laughs> so so what I wanted to know from you is, Janki, what are the other things that you've learned from him? And, and what is it like, uh, you know, what is that editor-writer relationship? Well, it helps that I'm not precious about my words. Uh, I didn't realize that until I heard someone moaning and groaning about it. And if an editor improves on what I've written, I can't thank them enough. I mean, sometimes we're just so stuck in a particular groove, we can't see it in its entirety, and it takes a fresh set of eyes to um, make it work. And yeah, so when I started off with science writing, I couldn't understand this whole idea of quoting other researchers. I thought it was somehow like, you know, to show that you've done your homework, that you can quote this guy verbatim that shows that you've done your job. And he was like, no, that's a lazy way of writing. You, you shouldn't do these extensive quotes. If you can't keep the quote down to 10 words, you should rewrite it. You should the only time you can quote somebody extensively is if they are saying it better than you can. So that was one good lesson I learned from Bookin. But there's also another editor whom I worked with, not on this book, on an article called Aftar Singh, who used to edit um, this the Indian Quarterly. It was a magazine. And he just, yes. like, I, I wrote this, long, some 2,500 or 3,000 word essay. And he, 
I realized I buried the lead in some bottom part of the article and he just pulled it from there, put it on top and my gosh, the article just completely changed. And I really admire that ability that to see the structure, to to see where the lead is buried somewhere and pull it up. And I, I think in, I really, really miss a good editor. I would, I mean, if I find one, I'd just latch onto them and not let them go. <laughs> no, it, it makes all the difference. It, it, it does. Yeah. yeah, no, I think, you know, this is so very insightful. And I love what you're trying to do, which is, you know, bridge that urban rural divide and get wildlife into all of our city dwellers homes. So thank you for doing that. Uh, but before we let you go, we have a small and fun rapid fire round. So I can begin. <laughs> okay, so five things humans can learn from animals. <laughs> Good Lord. Um, I don't know. It's kind of like if you take your dog, it's that unconditional kind of looking up to you for, you know, what should I do now? Do you think that's okay? I would like to be that fresh and um, not have that baggage, you know, whenever I'm dealing with people to deal with every situation as if, the previous bad interactions never existed. But we always bring that baggage to our next interaction, which bugs me. Never, I never thought of it like that. Now I'm going to look at my dog with fresh eyes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. You're supposed to look at other humans with fresh eyes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm that too. I'll try to do that too. <laughs> if you could pick an animal to read your book, who would it be and why? What about snakes? I mean, I find them so alien. I want to know what they think of humans and how we relate to them. And if a snake were to read what I wrote about a snake, I wonder what it would think. So if you could be reborn as a bird, which one would it be and why? An emu. Because they just don't care about okay, anybody. Why? They take on anything <laughs> and are just so crazy. I mean, if you watch the way they walk around, it's like they rule the world, you know? Maybe in an alternate universe, they would have. <laughs> just imagining, yeah, imagining that walk. <laughs> okay. All right. What trait of an amphibian that you wished you had? <laughs> you know, in the book, I write about uh, these glass frogs that pee on their eggs. <laughs> so, no, I'm not going to say that. <laughs> uh, one trait of a frog, maybe the ability to just disappear. Like there is this um, purple pig-nosed frog in the Anamalai Hills. And it just, I think, come, emerges for breeding time in the mate uh, in the monsoon and it just sleeps the rest of the year underground what it does i don't think anybody knows yet because so much of its life is underground one essay from your book that you would like to rewrite all of them and it can be none <laughs> no it's all of them oh really oh yeah i mean wow. i i cannot stop editing 
anything I've written. It's all, it's a nightmare. I can't let it go. And it's a good thing when I have deadlines because that forces me to send it. Otherwise, I just keep on endlessly editing, editing, editing. No, I think a lot of writers do feel that way. (laughs) Yeah. So that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you so much for speaking to us. I think this has been one of the most refreshing books and conversations that I've had in a really long time. So thank you for bringing a, a bit of the wilderness into our lives. Oh, thank you for having me. It was so fun. I, I didn't expect all those questions in the end. I think you just, uh, your love for animals is contagious, actually. <laughs> wow, what a refreshing episode, Tara. I wish we could talk about animals all day. Yeah, you know, it's so funny. I, I have a dog, so when I meet other dog owners, we can talk about our dogs for like one, two hours, you know, and it never gets <laughs> yeah. old. I think pet owners will really relate and animal lovers will relate. Sure. But on our next episode, we are going to be speaking to Anubha Yadav. She, it's a fiction episode. It's the author. She's the author of The Anger of Saintly Men. And it's a book that covers the lives of three brothers in a small town in Haryana. So the stories take a very close look at these men and how toxic masculinity affects them. Yeah, it was actually quite different from, you know, uh, all the episodes that we have covered actually so far because we usually read women's stories, we talk about the issues we face. But this book was really hard-hitting because we get to see how these men are actually even victims of patriarchy. Right, so tune into the next episode. But before that, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Bound India. DM us with the name of your favorite podcast and one lucky winner gets half an hour session with me. Yep, so until next time.